Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hello, welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. My name is Davey. I'm your host and joining me, Mel, our co-host. Mel, we have an incredible interview with Carissa and Cameron Sprinkle today that we actually had to break out into two parts. It was just that good. Because it was so, so good. So, so good. It was so, so good. I cannot wait for the listener to hear both these parts. In fact, we spent, I think, a combined total of three hours with them. They came over to the house to record this, and it wasn't, I mean, there are those interviews where you just feel the Holy Spirit in the room. And I could I could sense the healing power of the Holy Spirit through their mm. words, through their story, what was going on. I mean, just awesome couple. I'm so That's excited amazing. about this. Yeah, as I was listening to it, I was like, I want to be their friend. I want to know these people. <laughs> uh, they, they are very, very, very awesome people. And this is going to be an interesting uh, kickoff to a new series that we're doing last uh, last episode, we concluded a series on mental health, and I think everybody really enjoyed the series. And so we're taking an, uh, that approach again. We're going to do a, an entire series, this time on sexual betrayal. Um, and so these are all going to be stories based around that theme of sexual betrayal. Cameron and Carissa's is going to be uh, the first one within this. And But this one is, is cool because it kind of bridges the mental health series and the sexual betrayal series because within this story, there are both of these topics that are key components to the story. So there's definitely some mental health conversations that happen, particularly in part two, which we'll release on Monday. So you won't want to miss that, but you, you've got to listen to the first episode first. And also we are bringing back the lovely Julie Dotson, which I am so excited that she is mm-hmm. coming back um, to our podcast and she um, will have a counselor spot at the end of this um, interview. And she will be just giving some insight into um, sexual betrayal yeah. Yeah. And just so the listener knows the counselor spot for this interview, because this interview is in two parts, is going to be the end of the second part. So don't think you missed anything at the end of this particular episode, the next episode, part two of this interview with Chris and Cameron. At the very end of that, you'll want to stick around for some uh, some expertise commentary uh, from Julie Dodson. It's going to be really, really powerful. Yeah. And if you don't remember who she is, she we had her on the podcast um, on episode 70. It was one of my favorite all-time um, conversations that yeah. we've had on the Nothing is Wasted podcast. Well, and what's crazy, Mel, is since she was on the podcast, we've had so many people reach out and ask how they can book a session with Julie. So um, that's been really cool just to have people who have responded to that saying, hey, I would like to get some help for my marriage to be able to do this. So she certainly is available. She just told us the other the other day as we were recording with her, she told us that she is so slammed with so many people, which is good. I like to think that maybe we're bringing some people to her as well and that people are really buying into this idea that counseling does help with your healing. And so yes. feel yep, free to, sure. to reach out for that. Also, we want to bring your attention to the fact that next week we are releasing the registration link to our Israel trip. So Israel exciting. 2020. I- here we yes, go. Yes, it's going to be so great. So I think, haven't we sent it out to all the Nothing Is Wasted past guests? Yep. And the monthly partners and our email subscribers. So it's already gone out there. There's been some people who have already registered. And so you're going to want to jump on this quick. We only have 50 spots available. So next week, it's going out to the airwaves. Make sure you yep, tune so in. Yep, so sign up, sign up quick because is, those you, are going to fill up. Yeah, we're going to put it on 
We'll put it on Nothing Is Wasted Ministries Instagram. So make sure you go follow that. We'll put it everywhere. We're going to blast it. So make sure you go follow. I cannot wait for this trip. Mel, before we jump into this interview, I've got kind of something I want to talk about because this is a, I believe this interview is sparking a conversation that the church needs to have, we need to have as believers. Um, But I'm curious, you know, you're in a situation now where you are a pastor's wife, your mm-hmm. husband is a senior pastor of a church. You guys are kind of responsible for leading a church community. And sometimes when you're responsible for leading a church community or leader or leadership in general in a church community, it's hard to find safe places, safe spaces to just kind of, in some ways, let your hair down, be yourself, be real, genuine, authentic with people and feel like people know you truly who you are. Uh, do you feel like you have that? How have you navigated that? Yeah, that's a really great question. I do feel like I have it. Um, I mean, obviously, Charlie is a safe place um, for Mm -hmm. me to share my struggles with. um, But probably my best friend from college, she lives in Indiana. She lives in Bloomington. And so um, I'm constantly, even sometimes before I tell Charlie, like what's going on, like I externalize to her and then I'll go talk to Charlie. So he doesn't get the brunt of all of my thought life and everything. But she is the person in my life that is the quickest besides Charlie to remind me of the gospel, Mm. um, to remind me of truth according to that um, struggle. Um, And then I also do have a woman who is in our church and she is a mentor of mine and I meet with her twice a month. And with each three of those um, relationships that I have in my life, we've kind of set the precedent where um, I can tell them the ugliest thing about me and they Mm. still love me um, despite it all. And so, um, but I know that that's a rarity. I mean, what about you? What? Well, that is, that that is a rarity. That's what I was going to say with someone that is in your position, I think oftentimes pastors and and leaders in the church, whether it's on a pastoral staff or some type of leader, they don't feel like they can um, admit to struggles or or talk through or have a safe space where they mm-hmm. can do that because maybe this feeling that they have to put on an air of perfection or that people are mm-hmm. you know have a high expectation of them. And I think what the the lack of that or the vacuum of that is causing um, so many different things. One, I think it's causing um, an epidemic of mental illness with pastors and with church leaders, because mm-hmm. there's not a safe space for them to be able to to struggle. Um, I think it's causing an epidemic of addiction, because um, the 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 habits or the the precursors to those addictions are still left in the dark, and they're not able to confess those and wrestle through those with somebody safe. I mean, particularly on some in some church cultures and some church staffs, uh, you, you, you don't, your, your job is in jeopardy if you admit to the fact that you're struggling. And so Mm -hmm. to, you know, you wrestling with this, like, man, do I approach my leadership? Let's say you're on a church staff. Do I approach my leadership and tell them like, Hey, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm I have an addiction to porn or I'm struggling with this or whatever it is. Um, or do I continue to just try to fight it myself because my, my family's livelihood is on the line here. And I just think Mm -hmm. it's, it, it, this is a conversation that we need. It needs to. It needs to raise our eyebrows a little bit in the sense that we need to, um, in church communities, uh, be able to provide safe spaces for even the leaders to struggle. Yeah, 
Yeah, I was going to ask you, Davey, when you went to seminary, was there um, was there a class that said, okay, if a pastor is struggling or an elder or somebody on staff, this is what you do with them? Because I think I'm really burdened that I'm seeing way too often in our culture where people are in sin, which obviously it's okay. None of us are perfect. Yeah. We all fail. Um, but Either they leadership tells them to um, stop it, which you know that's right, just kind of a slap on the hand, and then or, or yeah, yeah, give them an ultimatum, like if you don't stop, you lose your job, right. um, or like uh, kind of give them a little bit of help, but then throw them back into ministry, yeah, and exactly. I feel like it really stunts their growth. Um, spiritually. Yeah, there's got to be, no, there's not usually classes for this in seminary, you know, and there's not this in like the the undergrad biblical studies that I did too. We didn't have classes in that. And it, it, it it's a conversation that you don't even, we didn't even get confronted with it until I was on staff at a very large church. And then um, all of a sudden somebody on staff had a moral failure and the leadership was wrestling with, and fortunately the leadership of this church was very open with the way they were wrestling with it with the staff and saying like, hey, mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out a way to sideline this person temporarily, rehabilitate, so to speak, this person, you know, rehabilitate them, get them back into ministry, um, have some kind of a restoration path. And I think that's a, that's the best way to approach it because you're walking yeah. alongside, but, but so often in ministry specifically, you just kind of throw them to the wolves. Um, whereas, yeah. you know, we, we have a heart for helping other people in our congregations to have a safe place to struggle. And we try to, you know, help them grow in their walk and grow in their faith. But for whatever reason, you don't have room to do that when you're on staff at a church or when you're in church leadership. And, and this is an important conversation. I don't know if there's a real clear cut and dry way to do it. I just think it's something that churches need to be intentional about. And it needs to be in the rhetoric of church, the, the leadership of churches, the eldership of churches saying, how do we help our pastors and our leaders not become unhealthy emotionally, not slip into addiction, not slip into mental uh, illness mm-hmm. because of the pressure that they're feeling, um, because of the constant demands that are on them? You know, I was I was talking to, and, and, and I'll say this, and then we can dive into the interview, but I was talking to someone just the other day about the pressures of ministry. And when you compare a pastor to like a, let's say a healthcare professional, a healthcare professional has the ability within their job to be able to create boundaries a little bit easier than a pastor does because mm-hmm. a healthcare professional takes on clients and they're hearing some really hard things. They're here, they're getting burdened by some hard stories, whether it's a counselor or a doctor who's in the midst of dealing with some pain in people's lives. Um, but they take on clients and there's a very set structure for, okay, I can handle X amount of clients in a given day. And these are paid clients, so to speak. That's not the case for a pastor. Right. You have a congregation no, that demands essentially your time and your energy and you're expected to be able to care for all of those sheep, so to speak. And man, that can be weighing on a pastor. And so it can cause a climate of mental uh, mental illness as well as addiction to begin to 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 grow and fester if we don't if we don't figure out a way to have these conversations. So yeah, yeah Davy, those are some great thoughts. I think it's definitely um, a conversation that the church needs to have um, more. So um, before we jump into this interview, um, there's a great review that I would love to read. It says. 
I have been listening to this podcast from the very beginning. I haven't listened to every single one, but I'd say about 85%. Not only does it help me understand pain and God's purpose in it, but it is full of episodes that I can put in my back pocket whenever I see someone else experiencing similar painful life experiences. I'm able to say, you are not alone. Someone else has been there. I think this episode will encourage you. So we love hearing how this um, podcast has been impacting you and that you've been sharing it with others. So thank you. And um, Instagram is another way to share with us how uh, God's using it in your life. You can follow Mm -hmm. us at Nothing Is Wasted Ministries and feel free to, as you're listening to a podcast, just take a quick uh, screenshot and tag us in it so we can see what you're listening to that day. Um, So without further ado, let's listen to Carissa and Cameron's interview. Cameron, Carissa, great to have you guys on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about you guys right now, present day. Your story is amazing. It's fascinating. It's incredible. It's heartbreaking. It is so also at the same time encouraging and healing. I'm very, very proud of you guys for sharing your story. You've just kind of started to come out publicly and share this. But before we dive into this story, tell us a little bit about your life right now. What's your family like? Where do you guys live? What is what does life look like for you guys? Well, we actually live on the north side of Indy. So we're, we actually just sold our house in Westfield and just bought a house in Noblesville. So okay. Noblesville is technically where we'll be calling home for You're on the other a side. while. Yes. The other side of the north side of Indy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. Uh, Very north. Nice. Um, we have a two-year-old. She will actually be three next month. So oh. we don't really even have a two-year-old anymore. So <laughs> she's... Does she communicate like my son and all the way up until like the day of like his birthday, he was like, I'm four and a half. I'm like, no, you're not four and a half. You're literally turning five tomorrow, but whatever. It's fine. You're four. Yeah. No, she keeps talking about she's two, but she said, I'm going to get three. I'm going to get three. And then she has other friends and she's, then I'm going to get five. And we're like, well, you're going to get four Uh, first. So she's very excited about. That's awesome. Getting three. Side note, we went to the state fair the other day, took the kids, and Weston had just turned five, and we were, apparently the kids get in for free in the state fair, in, hmm. you know, Indiana State Fair, and and we kept going, we kept, tonight you're free, you're free tonight, guys, and he was like, I'm not free, I'm five. <laughs> and kid language, that's hilarious. Yeah. That's great. Okay, oh, so you word. got a two-year-old, almost three. Uh, yes. What do you guys do? Um, well, I stay home. Um, I used to be a full-time photographer. And then when I had her, we actually went through uh, about three years of infertility to get her. So when we finally got her, I was like, I'm staying home. I'm going to spend as much time as I can with her. Um, and then, uh, he is a full-time video producer, so you can share oh, whatever. Cool. So you guys are both creative. That. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. We're equally yoked in that way for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, that could work really well in tandem here. In the, it actually know, is really nice. Yeah. He's yeah. shooting yeah. weddings with me. Videographer. And yeah. I've shot video, done video shoots with him before And too. I can run my edits past her and she always like, she can give me honest, like really helpful advice. So she's. Definitely a secret sauce that I don't tell my clients about. <laughs> well, I let my As wife watch it. All of our wives are <laughs> yeah. the secret sauce, right? Yeah. <laughs> if everyone knew oh, how many great. questions of like conf- confirmation and affirmation I ask Christy, they'd be like, wow, Dave, you really aren't anything. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, you're right. Yeah. Not her. 
Nothing. Yeah, we run everything past each other, like social media posts and emails. Every, and pretty much everything. Proofreading, like, does this sound too direct, whatever? So, <laughs> yeah, we really trust each other in that way. Prior to that, I was on staff at a church. Uh, I was basically a creative director. Uh, I led uh, worship, led the music um, ministry, and then also just kind of headed up communications and programming for Sunday morning. And I did graphic design, web, video, photo. Um, wow. Yeah. All of the things. Yeah, like a true Enneagram four. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it was uh, <laughs> definitely about wanting to control everything. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> wanting it to be done well and not trusting anyone else to do it. So, um, yeah. So, I did that and I, I had this video uh, business kind of on the side. And then um, two and a half years ago, uh, went full time into uh, this video production business and, and it's going really well. Cool. That's awesome. Well, you know, you referenced the fact that you were on staff at a church and, and this plays into your story a mm-hmm. little bit. And so um, I want you guys to kind of take us back. Your story is, uh, you know, again, it's it's very uh, it's very inspiring. And at first, the, the listener is going to say, you're inspiring. What do you mean by that? When we get around to all of it, it's very inspiring because you two are sitting here talking to me together about this. But it's been a hard road for yeah. you both. And, um, and so why don't you guys take me back and kind of start me at the beginning of this journey for you? Yeah. Well, I'll go ahead and start with it. Um, I'll go back to, uh, we had our daughter, we'd been married about seven years. And like I said before that, he was in ministry full-time, that had its own challenges. And then we went through three years of trying to have a baby, which is uh, so hard. It's such a silent grief that you're just kind of dealing with all the time. And we had to go through IVF. We did four rounds of IVF. So it was almost because of how it all works. It was almost a year straight of just procedures to have her, um, that kept not working. And then finally one did and we miscarried. Hmm. And then a few months later, it finally worked again. So you can imagine that by the time we had this wonderful miracle baby, I really thought, okay, life is finally like coming together for the first time. I'm finally going to have my whole family that I've like dreamed of and fought really hard for at this point. Can you, you, real quick, let me just take just kind of a, before we start diving down Mm -hmm. that road, can you elaborate a little bit on, and maybe you're going to share some of this because I, you know, I've not heard everything in detail, but Mm -hmm. during that season of infertility, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and continuing to try and continue to be disappointed. Um, wh- what was going on between the two of you guys? How are you guys shouldering that in regards to your relationship with each other? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, maybe this plays into the story a little bit as well, but I know that there's probably people who married couples who are struggling with this and they've seen this affect their marriage. Can you speak to that at all? Oh man. Yeah. That's a whole nother thing I could probably talk know, for days about. I know, we didn't even about, think about talking about that, but yeah, I, you know, I wonder no, if I mean, you can speak to that. It's a huge part of this, yeah. I feel like, because that is where I feel like, um, you know, marriage has its natural things that are going to fall apart just yeah. naturally. But I think when you throw in something as giant as infertility, yeah. grieving together constantly is mm. something that's just, it's like this thing that's always there on top of work is hard and life is hard and marriage is hard. And so just to constantly have to deal with that. And I think we all think that starting a family together is this unifying next step. So Mm. if you can't get there, you're, um, like I said, it's just kind of a silent grief Mm. that others aren't aware of. And and it'd be hard enough if we were like on the same page or timeline with the grief 
But I think yeah. that um, Carissa's always like felt things like three to six months ahead of when they mm-hmm. finally hit me. And uh, I think that for her, infertility made her feel more broken as mm-hmm. a person and, and like in her body, like then it made me feel. Um, and so, uh, you know, I used to think when it, prior to going through it, that infertility was just like, oh, they just really want a baby. When you find another baby to hold, like what? Yeah, right. Uh, but going through it, like you just see the way that, like it ravages your soul, it ravages right. your marriage because you start realizing like we just we're not in sync emotionally, physically. It throws you off rhythm because now mm-hmm. intimacy is no longer about intimacy. It's about making trying to you know mm-hmm. catch the train at the right time and um, and so dealing with hormones too. I was taking shots. Oh, yeah. yeah, so she was all over I'm the place. Just, yeah, it was oh. just I was mess. trying to track with that which I thought I was good at up until that point. Yeah. And, um, and I was planning baby showers for my best friends through oh all of this. Gosh, like yeah. all of our friends yeah. were just having them like crazy. It just and felt, so it that, that threw just, into disarray our spiritual, like just made us question so many things about God's goodness and mm-hmm. why would he do this? Like Chris, was clearly made to be a mother. I'm clearly made to be a father. Like why do other people win the kid lottery? Mm-hmm. And while well, we're just sitting here, like, and just, you know, remind you just how broken the world is and, just none of it made any sense, and it really uh, threw us off in our marriage and in deep ways that we're, we're honestly still recovering from. Wow! So and that was very—I mean, it was very insightful, very helpful. Because I, again, there's so many listeners who that's that's their story, and mm-hmm. nobody knows it. Mm-hmm. You know, it is like what you said—a silent. It's hard grief. to share about. It's it another to shameful topic yeah. in a way because you Absolutely. feel like you're inadequate somehow. Absolutely. It's, crazy we feel that way but we just do yeah no and working through that is it's tough. but it's the feeling that's what you feel mm-hmm. that's exactly what it mm-hmm. is and it puts you like i think you guys articulated the best it puts you out of sync emotionally with each other you mm-hmm. know you have to do some really hard work some difficult difficult work to try to get back in sync emotionally because you're processing those things mm-hmm. differently i was in counseling that entire time just putting that uh, out there yeah, no. yeah so okay so you're battling with this yeah and uh continue in, in the story then yeah Um, so by the time we had her, um, we had her in October of 2016 and, um, it really was a dream come true. I mean, it was just magical. And honestly, she was a wonderful baby. We got, Mm. we won the lottery as far as babies go. She was a sleeper and eater, all those things. So, um, I joked that it was, <laughs> well, the reward after going through infertility, like, mm-hmm. oh, good, he gave us an easy baby. So she was wonderful. You had this great line that I love. I always tell people that uh, when we, we tell a people, lot of money for when we tell people, yeah, we paid a lot of money for her, but the joke's on them because we would have paid a lot more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so definitely worth it. <laughs> yeah. And that was the other hard part of infertility was it was very financially yeah. draining. Yeah, absolutely. So that was super tough. So um, when she got here, I was like, okay, great. Our world has finally... Yeah. arrived in a way. And um, so the months went on. Um, we got through Christmas, the holidays, um, and she was great. I was loving motherhood, but I just felt like life was still just really off. Mm. Like I felt like Cameron was probably more depressed than he's ever been. And it again, it wasn't even because of her. It wasn't, you know, she was really wonderful. and um, But things just weren't normal. Yeah. Um, and it was February 9th, um, of 2017. He 
texted me. I was home um, in the afternoon. I remember I was just like sitting at the computer with um, Scarlett was on, that's our daughter. She was on my lap and um, he just texted me and said, hey, I'm coming home and I have something I need to tell you. And um, Kathy's going to be meeting me there. So Kathy was like a mentor to me. Mm. She's kind of been one of those women I've met with through the years. She's just been a great support and encourager. And I, it was the weirdest thing. I really had no concept of what was coming. And yet at the same time, I just had this gut feeling of life's just really going to change right now. You could tell it felt heavy. Like I was like, this uh, is life changing. Yes. And I was like, why would Kathy need to be here? Like, what could you possibly tell me that she would need to be here for this? Um, And so I walked upstairs, put Scarlett down for a nap, walked back downstairs, sat on the couch and stared out the window. And I remember just, it was the longest 15 minutes of my life. Mm -hmm. I was just like, okay, I don't know exactly what this is. I knew things were wrong. I just didn't know what was wrong. Um, so Kathy got there first. She walked in the door. She'd been on the phone with him and she was crying. And I said, honestly, I, Kathy, I don't know why you're here. And she said, it's bad. It's bad. Um, so we walk into the living room. A minute later, you pull in. Cameron comes home and um, uh, sits down on the couch and proceeds to tell me that he has been having an affair with a woman who was on staff at our church. Mm. Um and this woman was actually my small group leader at the time. And we'd been friends with their family for years. Um, and I had just even recently poured out my heart to her about mm. my marriage and my struggling marriage and just couldn't understand why my marriage was struggling the way that it was. I assumed it was the baby. That's what everyone says. You have a baby and it's going to be hard yeah. on your marriage. And so I was destroyed. I mean, I thought... Um, I had asked about this previous this person previously several times, but never uh, I would have bet my life on the fact that he would never have had an affair. Mm. He grew up in the church. I grew up in the church. This was a very um, established thing that we talked about. Right. We talked about it with friends, you know, like, okay, you know, we're friends with these other people. Um, so we know, okay, this is on the radar. This, you know, we got to be careful right. here. We got to be careful there. Boundaries. We had them. We had boundaries. Yeah. Um, so I was just completely shocked. I honestly like was throwing up a minute mm. later. Um, I remember just laying on the bathroom floor. Kathy came and sat with me and I was just, I was screaming into her lap. I was just so devastated. And I remember wishing you know, and it feels weird to even say this to you, Davey, but I, I had wished he had just died in a car accident. Mm. If my marriage is going to end, I don't want it to end because he chose to abandon right, me. Right. That hurts way too, that yeah. just hurts too much. Absolutely. I'd rather him have just been gone. And, um, as I've, I've said this before, I'll, you know, just kind of give you an assurance in this. Um, I remember when I read Elizabeth Elliot's book, Path of Loneliness, she said in there, she said, I've discovered a, a, a pain that is deeper than death. And it was when she was counseling a friend of hers who had just had a divorce Mm. and trying to help her wrap her heart around the feelings of betrayal and rejection and Mm -hmm. abandonment and all of those things Mm -hmm. of of her husband choosing to leave. And she said it under that context, I've, I've now witnessed a pain deeper than death. Yeah, So well said. And I remember reading that going, Oh my gosh, 
mm-hmm. like, wow. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it, 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 it kind of puts some things into perspective for me mm-hmm. and just the, the, the pain that exists in affairs and divorce and, and those things as well. So, yeah. and I think even yeah. as believers, because our wedding, like I still look back at our wedding and it was just precious. Like it was wonderful. We worshiped during our wedding and I still have such great memories of that day. And it was, you know, when you're a believer, you enter into a covenant. And so this was a court of three strands mm-hmm. in my mind. And so I think that it's one thing for one strand to break, but for three strands to break, it is a ripping like yeah, right. I've never knew existed. Yeah. And so the betrayal was so deep. I remember thinking, I feel like I'm dying. Like, And now that I've done more research about the brain and mm-hmm. trauma, like the physical pain you feel in that moment is actually very real. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, my body felt like it was dying yep. in that moment, which is the weirdest thing to say, but... Yep. Absolutely. So, um, okay. So I want to, uh, like, I want to kind of hear from Cameron yeah. on that, your perspective on that moment, you know, as your, as your, first of all, uh, if you can share with us, like what prompted you to go, you know what, I need to, I need to tell Carissa this. And then secondly, as you're readying yourself for that conversation, how did you tell me what you were feeling? Man. Uh, so the, you know, this is, the part that's really hard for me to go back to, this was, you know, the darkest day of my life. And, um, you know, the reason I told her, I'd love to say that I had this burst of courage or a burst of integrity. Uh, but the reason I told her that day was because my affair partner had come clean that day and kind of forced my hand. And, um, so, uh, I, uh, knew I had to tell Carissa, um, because, it was a situation where people were finding out. So, um, the, the leaders of my church, um, man, it, it was a really profound moment. I knew I wanted somebody to be there for her. And I knew that I was about to go home and just absolutely crush her. And so, uh, pr- the profound moment was going through my contacts on my phone, um, thinking who can do this and, um, scrolling through, I was like, man, like what type of uh, person do you have to be to be a person that makes someone stop scrolling in this moment? Mm-hmm. And uh, came to say her name, it's Kathy Elzinga. Oh, yeah, she's... And um, she'd just always been just uh, such a gift to us. And, man, I, I called her. Um, she picked up the phone. Hey, buddy. And I said, Kathy, you know, I... I uh, I've been having an affair mm. and I have to go tell her right now. And I really need you to be there when I do that. And, uh, you could just hear like the, the t- tension and tone change over the phone. And she said, uh, I'm grabbing my keys right now. I'm on my way, man. Um, and she was at work, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so she, while we continued to stay on the phone, she began speaking in tongues and, and I didn't know what she was saying. I just knew that somehow it was protecting me in some way. Um, and she actually told me later that in the weeks and months leading up to this, she felt like God was preparing her for something. She didn't know what, but she said the minute she saw you calling, she was like, this is it. And she wow. knew it. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy to hear later, but And yeah. just to testify further to like God's um, 
desire for this sin to be brought to light, uh, several of the leaders involved um, had dreams leading up to this last, this was on a Thursday, uh, that basically were like vivid dreams that kind of illuminated them to the fact that something was going on, not just with me, but me and this other person. Wow. And so it really felt like we were being run down. Right. And it felt like time was up. Um, so yeah, that, that drive, I went over and, and, and pulled over at CVS by our house and waited until Kathy drove by because I didn't want to be there without her. She drove by. Um, and I mean, it was just awful. And uh, I, I pulled in. And Carissa was like white as a ghost. And uh, I still just remember the look on her face uh, before and after I told her she was terrified. Um, and I just said, I've been having uh, a uh, affair for three months uh, with this person. She just said, what? And she just, I mean, it just just melted. And, um, you know, it, it's so hard for me to remember that. It's so hard for me to talk about it, but it's so good for me to mm-hmm. do that. Uh, it's very sobering, and um, I think it's really healthy to keep talking about it and to remember that day. Uh, another thing I think it's important to say is that um, we, Chris and I have talked about this, that what I've seen in this situation is that I think people think that confession will automatically clear your head, clear you up, um, break your addiction, break your mind patterns, whatever. But it absolutely did not because confession doesn't change uh, the neural pathways in your brain. It doesn't change your personal trauma, your background. So I was really in a haze at this mm-hmm. point, and I was for a while. I was in kind of a shock period. Um, and the way I love to describe it is uh, Bruce Banner, mm-hmm. who is the Hulk, uh, we see in some of the Avengers movies when he wakes up after the Hulk, yeah. especially the one Age of Ultron. Uh, <laughs> get a little nerdy on you there. Uh, you know what's cool? Like the Avengers, okay? It's the <laughs> highest grossing movie of all time. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. So he wakes up in this crater and looks around and, and sees all mm-hmm. the destruction that he knows he did. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't really have a recollection of it. Right. Um, and he just wonders how in the heck could I do this? And for me, it was uh, kind of like that. And, and, um, so, yeah, that was wow. that was devastating. It, it, it finally, you know, I realized just how far I'd come. I'd felt like I was on a downward slope for years, um, but it was definitely a moment where it was a, a bottoming out moment. Hmm. It was in that same conversation that he also confessed to um, his porn addiction. Yeah. And I had actually known about that when we were dating, but it was one of those things where it's like, okay, it's behind me now. You know, I've told this person or I've done this, it's behind me right. now. So he had periods of confessing it over the years, yeah. but it had been a long time. And it was something that we talked about regularly. I asked him about it. We had safeguards on our devices. And um, so it had been about five years since the last time he'd come clean about it. And so in that afternoon he said for the last five years my addiction's been a full-blown addiction and i've been lying about it the entire time that was a big shock for me i want to interrupt this amazing interview for just a few seconds to let you know about our pain to purpose video series You may have heard us talk about it before, but if not, this is a video series we created to help you step-by-step as you navigate a tragedy, trial, or transition in your life. In the videos, I discuss practical ways to work through your pain, 
no matter the category it falls under, and how to find both meaning and purpose through it. We believe this video series can have a profound impact on you or a loved one. This can be a great resource if you lead a small group for your church, or if you're looking for personal direction for your own life, or if you have a friend in mind you think could use some help navigating a valley. If you fall into any of these categories and are interested in learning more or purchasing today, head to MyPainToPurposePlan.com. That's MyPainToPurposePlan.com. Now back to our conversation. It's those really, really dark moments that you never expect God to show up. You know, if you're just kind of, if we're sitting here talking about it, it's like, man, you feel like that God's a million miles away in those moments. Um, how would you say God was with you guys that day in that moment? Well, I, I spoke about the protection that I felt when Kathy uh, started praying over me and speaking in tongues. Um, I think part of that haze was actually that protection of like, God's like, I'm not going to let you feel all this right now. Um and I felt like the next morning, so I, I stayed at a friend's house that night in their guest room. And um, the next morning, the moment I woke up, it's like the protection was lifted mm. and it just all hit me. Yeah. Um, and I was just, I felt like my soul was being ripped apart. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I've, I've talked about this. I'm going to get a lot of movie references from me because mm-hmm. I'm a, a movie guy, but, um, and I make movies. Yeah, movie, yeah so. of course. Makes sense. Uh, but uh, in the Harry Potter movies, when uh, Voldemort tears his soul into seven pieces mm-hmm. with each each time that he uh, murders someone, it felt like all of those the soul tearing that I did all finally um, happened at once with yeah. no anesthetic or anything, and it was awful. Um, but uh, in that moment, I collapsed on my friend's, uh, their bathroom floor, and, and uh, my friend Dan... Uh, just came and uh, just rubbed my back with his hand and just sat with me. And uh, I've had issues with um, men my whole life. Mm. And I feel like that's one of the first times maybe my whole life that I ever felt genuinely comforted Mm. by a man's touch. And uh, Dan was just, he didn't have anything to say and there was nothing to say, but uh, him just touching me like that, was was God's presence? Wow! Uh, in that terrible moment on the floor in the bathroom. Wow, man! All right, so now you guys are in this place where you're 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 dealing with this. It's he's he's come clean to you. Mm-hmm. You're feeling this just absolute horrendous grief and mm-hmm. and trauma. And you know, I love how you phrase the a ripping of your soul. I mean. The deepest places of your gut, you can just feel this horrendous pain. Mm-hmm. What was kind of the next step or the next phase? Did it, you know, I think people would like you, you'd like to be able to say, Oh, it got better from there, you know, and this is mm-hmm. what we did, and this is the steps. What happened from there? Yeah, it got, it got uglier for yeah, sure. It got worse before it got, it got worse. Yeah. Um, I knew I needed him gone, so he did go stay with a friend. Um, I couldn't even sleep in my bed that night. My bed was tainted. My whole house mm. was tainted at that point. Like to me, my whole life was a lie yeah. is what it felt like. So mm. um, 
So he left, my best friend came, spent the night with me. And then the next day she helped me pack up and I went to my parents. Mm. Um, eventually I needed to be back in town just for doctor's appointments and things I had. So I moved in with my sister um, for a few weeks. And at this point, um, so this happened on a Thursday. He confessed on a Thursday. And like we said, he was on staff at our church. Um, people saw him every single Sunday morning he was on stage. So um, it was a smaller church. So everyone pretty much knew uh, mm. who he was. He confessed this on a Thursday. And on Sunday morning, they announced it to both of our campuses mm. that he and this woman would be resigning because of their relationship. And... So while I'm sitting in my parents' chair in the corner of the living room, still just in shock, I mean, my body was physically shutting down, um, my phone started blowing up. Mm. I got messages, text messages from people who didn't even go to our church. But when they announced it, that was about 800 to 1,000 people who heard it that Sunday morning. Um and then it, I mean, stuff like this spreads faster yeah, than anything. Right. So it spread to people who I hadn't talked to in years. Oh, man. Um, so they were messaging. I was rapidly trying to shut down all my social media accounts and everything. Yeah. Um, and so it was really hard to deal with it while everyone else was dealing with it at the exact same time. And I had to really wow. learn how to separate my pain from their pain. Mm. I'm, I'm a two. I'm a helper. Yeah. I carry people's pain naturally. I'm super empathetic. And so that was super, super hard mm. for me to, I had to set a lot of boundaries with that. And so then uh, because of that, um, this family who was involved actually had given us a car several years prior as sort of a a sweet gift really mm. to say one day God's going to fill this vehicle with children. And it was such a blessing. And that was the car he drove. Naturally, that car was gone out of the picture immediately. Mm. Um, I did not want to live in my house again. Um, so our realtor came to get it ready to put on the market. Um, I was a stay-at-home mom, so he was our sole income. And so they let me know your last paycheck will be next week. Oh my and gosh, wow. um, I didn't know what we were going to do after that. Um, we lost a lot of really close friendships, um, through all of that, our community. It's really hard when your job is also your yeah, community. Right. So we lost our church. We Just lost our community. So much the case in ministry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's all so tied together. Wow. And so, I mean, literally in those amount of days, I felt like all I had was my baby and my dog mm. and I didn't know what we were going to do next. So, um, it was really, really dark, just mm. the most depressed, devastated, hopeless I've ever been. So, um, but I feel like God gave me really wise parents, mm. which I'm super grateful for. He gave me women like Kathy. I have a couple really close best friends. Dan is married to one of my best friends and um, they walked through us walked through this with us so, so closely. And so it was with the help of some of them that I kind of got to this place where I said so much has been taken from me. Mm. I don't want my house to be taken from me this way. So um, one really powerful thing was a few weeks after this happened, I said, I want to go claim my house back. Mm. And so Kathy and another friend of my parents came and we just went around the whole house, room to room, bathrooms, closets, you name it. We prayed over the entire thing, every doorway. Um, and it was just really empowering. Wow. Anointed it with oils and we anointed yeah. it with oil. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that I felt like was our first step in, at least for me saying, I'm going to take yeah. this back and I'm going to move forward. I'm going to survive. Don't know yeah. what we're doing yet, but I'm going to survive and take my house back. Yeah. Yeah. From the, um, obviously being in ministry, I've, you know, heard so many different stories similar to this, you know, that, um, uh, especially like a, a pastor, moral failure, stuff like that. And, and some stories I hear that a community wrapped their arms around them. And some stories I heard, they f- feel like they just, like all of their community was gone, like almost abandoned them or in some ways, you know, feeling like, um, you become kind of the scarlet A or the black sheep of the the community. Um, how would you how would you comment on that? Without you know, I don't know how comfortable you guys feel about talking about that. But how would you comment from in general and just the sense of how community either undergirded you or how it could have played a huge role in your life from a positive perspective? Mm-hmm. And you know, and I'm asking this question because. I don't know what happened. I don't know how that happened, but you know, if I were to make the statement, man, community is so important to healing. How would you guys comment it from the perspective of your experience in this? I think the first thing I would say is just that the church is always messy mm-hmm. and that the answer to that is never going to be really clear cut. I don't think it certainly wasn't for us. Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that, one of the reasons that things went uh, the way they did and why I started, um, you know, why I even entered into that relationship with my relationship with the leaders there was deteriorating. Um, I was, um, my pride was escalating. So I caused a lot of friction, especially down those last six months, uh, which didn't help then when I needed their help. Mm. Um, uh, But also I think that this, Nobody was really prepared for this, right? And most people aren't, uh, right? And so this was very overwhelming for everyone involved, um, and really pushed on everyone's weaknesses, yeah. Um, their and, own hurts and their own wounds, yeah, their own hurts, their own wounds, right. which came back, you know, in weird ways, and you know, and and like I said, I was in a shock period, so you know, I had things that I said or did in, in those early days that I wish I could take back, that I wish yeah. I could have done differently. Um, but I also, we, we, we said that everyone found out who I really was and then we found out who everyone else really was. Mm, yeah. And, um, whether that's regarding their character or capacity or whatever. Um, so we had a, a sector of, of, uh, the church that didn't know what to do with me. Um, and I think they just kind of had to just drop mm. out. Um, and that was how I describe primarily the church that we were a part of. Um, I think there were just a ton of people that just had no idea what to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we had some friends that tried to hang in there, but it eventually just was kind of over their head. And I think they started yeah. drowning in it and they had to draw boundaries for themselves. Um, and I felt abandoned, um, but I also have abandonment issues. So it's easy for me to feel that way. Um, but uh, we also saw the church be the mightiest that it possibly can be. Uh, And really what's really cool about that is, is that was people, it was individuals. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, um, you know, I I kind of struggle with the modern church model anyway. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, we, it wasn't a logo that came to our rescue. It was 
Katie and Sarah and Dan yeah, and good. Tyler and Joel and Chris mm-hmm. and and Kelly and, and, and so many individual people. It's what the church is. Exactly. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So in that we way, we really saw both sides. Yeah. We saw yeah. both. Yeah. We saw the best yeah. and the worst of the church. And that's, yeah. And that's what's so you know, it's, I think it's paramount to point out the fact that when there's tragedy of any sort of any nature, right? When we don't know what to do with it, oftentimes we we're going to find the reactions of all the extremes from other people. And I think it's important for us to recognize introspectively on our own selves. You know, I can speak personally. I have probably been guilty of being the one who didn't know what to do with that or didn't know what to do with someone else's sin. And so out of not knowing what to do with it, I just kind of exited stage right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I've also been the one with whom people were like, I don't know what to do with that mm-hmm. and felt the exiting of other people. And I think that's really, it's messy. It's exactly it's what you said. Messy. It's really hard mm-hmm. and it's messy because what that can begin to do is cause us to create these, these ideas inside of our head of what the church is positive or negative, what it's done and what, and begin to yeah. mm-hmm. start getting really bitter about certain things. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and yet, you know, if we're all take a step back, we go, wow, like the church is messy because people are messy and life mm-hmm. is messy. And what is the stable thing in this whole th- equation? It's, oh, it's Jesus. And even with mm-hmm. leaders, I mean, I think that, you know, and I grew up in the church and so I adored and idolized leaders and pastors. Mm-hmm. And not that I still don't think they deserve so much respect because I've seen behind the scenes what it takes and what they have to do. But I also... I feel like my eyes have been open to like, wow, they're human. They need so much grace yeah. and they need a safe place to struggle. Right, right. And if we don't give them that point, case in point, I was yeah. getting that wrong. Yeah. It will explode. That's and exactly it, right. It just, it just did. Yeah. How did, Cameron, how did you feel like from the perspective of someone who's in ministry, right? Give me a little bit of insight into how did you feel about maybe early on in this as you as you begin finding yourself slipping into a sexual addiction and to pornography, and w- what was it that that caused this cloud of concealment? Like, why was it? You know, I'm sure I'm sure it had. Uh, there were so many elements of which why why you felt maybe not safe to be able to kind of struggle, like what you said, sh- a safe place to struggle. Um, some having to do with your, the church, some having to do with other parts of your life, yeah. but. Can you give me some insight into that, how you felt as far as the safety with which to struggle yeah, with that? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, uh, so I, I was I was a really awkward kid. Um, I was very introverted. Uh, I loved spending time by myself. Mm. Um, but I was also lonely and uh, didn't have many friends. And then I got a guitar for Christmas in eighth mm-hmm. grade. <laughs> And um, it just felt like the Lord had just like pre-implanted the ability mm. to play it. Like I learned so fast and and outpaced my peers, and um, which again made me feel lonely, ironically, because mm. I didn't feel like I had yeah. people to play with. But um, mm. and suddenly I had a place in the world. And um, man, the church loves their worship leaders, right? And I like to say that worship leaders are the whiteouts of the church football team. <laughs> that they love the big plays. It's just- yeah, you know, yeah. the elders are the O-line. No one's really sure what they do, but they protect the quarterback who's the lead pastor, the running back. Hopefully they protect the quarterback. Yeah, that's their job. In some cases, they're just like, you know that scene in, yep. uh, here's a movie reference for you. Remember the Titans where he just kind of lets them go? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some elderships, that's the case. Yep. Yeah, that and uh, running backs are the youth pastor.
faster because they don't last yeah. very long. Yeah, right. It's just hard. <laughs> this is great, Church man. We should humor. write a book about this. You get this, this is yeah. awesome. Yeah, you so can good. have that. Dude. We can yeah. just nerd out that's on amazing. this. Well, yeah. yeah. So, um, so I, I quickly became very loved and beloved mm. in the church. Um, and uh, there's a lot of things I wasn't good at, but like worship was like came very naturally to me. I had a very intimate relationship with the Lord and, and he gave me um, music of the love language with him. And so then when I did that in front of people, people mm. felt like they connected with him too. And uh, so I, I now refer to it as Justin Bieber syndrome mm. or child star syndrome, which is where your talent developed ahead of your character. Yeah. Wow. And uh, so another Marvel reference, um, I had been Peter Parker, mm. suddenly became Spider-Man and everybody loves Spider-Man because mm. he can do a lot for them. He's uh, easy to like and love. And um, I didn't want people to know that I was actually Peter Parker. Mm. I didn't know. I wasn't doing that consciously. All I knew was that I loved how this felt. And uh, I believed in what I was doing. I yeah. believed, you know, I loved the Lord and, and I loved I loved helping people learn how to worship God. Um, but I didn't realize until two and a half years ago that I'd never dealt with the fact that I did not love being Peter Parker. I didn't mm. love Peter Parker. And I never wanted anybody to know that that's who I really was because Peter Parker had a sex addiction. Mm. Peter Parker was uh, insecure. Um, he, uh, you know, there were so many things. He was depressed. He struggled with anxiety. Um, and so that was kind of what I was protecting along the way um, was I don't want to give up my Spidey suit. My Spidey suit makes money. It provides my family. My Spidey suit inspires people. It helps people. Why would I take all that away? Um and the other part of that is that I really fought my addiction for years. I tried everything. I, con I confessed to pastors multiple times, um, guys that I was friends with in the area uh, growing up in Kokomo. Um, I tried to put together an accountability group of my peers. And I remember one time said, like, I had a beard. It was really long and I was proud of it. And I said, if I, you know, if I screw up, I have to shave my beard. And I said, okay. And I showed up next week with no beard. I was like, sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and like that didn't keep me and yeah. and so um I, I tried so many things and and then the last thing that I tried was a year into uh being on staff I, I confessed to Carissa and uh that crushed her and I confessed to to church leadership and um again I just don't think most most church leadership knows uh what to do in that situation they don't know that addiction uh that shame is such a powerful thing in addiction mm. um but the initial response was kind of, uh, we can't let anybody know about mm -hmm. this because there are people that would want you to fired for this. Mm -hmm. And uh, we kind of got similar messages from um, just various points on leadership that uh, if this happened again, like you'll be you'll be fired. Mm -hmm. And um, which um, makes sense, you know, you, you want your pastor to have integrity, uh, but on the other hand, for that to be the primary and, and initial message. Um, basically um, just kind of told me that if you can't fix this, you're going to have to hide it really well. Wow. And so um, from that point on, I made it like three months. You know, they, they paid for me to go to counseling. I made it like three months. But um, when it came back, I was like, well, I guess I'm never telling anybody ever again because I am hopeless on beating it and I don't know how to live without my Spidey suit. Mm. Wow. Um, all right. Here's what I want to do. We're gonna um, we're gonna close out this part. We're gonna do a part two because we have so much more we want to talk about, mm -hmm. and I don't think we're gonna be able to talk about it in this time frame. Um, so I want you guys to join me for 
part two of my conversation with uh, Cameron and Carissa. So make sure you tune in next time. Davey, I am loving the first part of this interview. I think one of my favorite parts so far is uh, when I am talking to somebody that is going through something difficult, Mm -hmm. I don't even know what to say. And um, whenever Cameron says that Dan didn't say anything, he's lying on the bathroom floor and Dan just puts his hand Mm. on his back and is just um, comforting him without any words. That spoke volumes to me. Um, And just how important it is to have people in our lives, um, for when we walk through grief. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and how important it is when you, when you feel a prompting to help somebody, you know, this is one of the things I'd love to mention. I love the fact that people reach out to us and say, Hey, would you reach out to this particular person, uh, and help them? I mean, that's, it's Mm -hmm. fantastic. You know, we've, and that's what we try to do as a ministry. We have tools, that we want to be able to help people with. You know, we've got the Pain to Purpose course. We've got online community groups that are going to be starting up here pretty soon. We've got all kinds of content. But at the end of the day, I feel like that one of the reasons that that person's been put on your heart is so that you can be an instrumental person in their life. Hmm. And whether that means you're serving up some of this content that we're producing, I think you're going to be the best person in that person's life. And for you to be a catalytic person, just like Dan was for Cameron, and just show up and be there because there's something powerful about just being in someone's grief and, and just, just sitting with them. Literally, not, you don't just have sitting to know what that. to say. Yeah, yeah, you don't have to know. And and so I, I just think use that kind of when you feel. I don't know what to say right now. Use that as like a spirit check of going, maybe that means I shouldn't say anything. I should just put my arm around this person and just love them. Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, I know you guys um, are anxious to hear how this story ends. And so you luckily don't have to wait until Thursday. The second part of this interview will be released on Monday. That's right. That is great news. Such such great news. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. We want to thank Ryan O'Neill handled sleeping at last make sure you go and download any of his music uh because it's awesome but he provides all the music for the nothing is wasted podcast so thank you ryan for doing that and before we sign off why don't you listen to a little excerpt from the second part of this conversation with cameron and carissa So I moved back into the house. He went and stayed with his parents. Um, And it was somewhere in that first few weeks that I felt like God was just starting to make it clear that if Cameron, I feel like he just, he just said this to me, if, if Cameron, um, as long as Cameron continues to move forward, I want you to move forward.